Welcome to another episode of the WBT, Rathbearing Trees podcast. I'm your host, Adrian Bonnenberger, and today I'm talking with Duane Ferrier about his book, Revolutions of All Colors, and his experiences and thoughts about the country of Ukraine. I'm in Connecticut in a blizzard, and Duane, you're joining us from the Philippines? I am. Yeah, we're, we're here in Manila, so it's six in the morning on my end, 610. <laughs> what are you doing over there now? I do security for international humanitarian and development organizations. Right now, I, I spent 10 years at the United Nations uh, after I left the military. Uh, now I work for the Asian Development Bank, which is a, um, a s- small regional partner of the World Bank, uh, an international financial institution. We do um, large loans and grants. So I, I look after the Asian Development Bank, ADB's field security program. So we have 45, our headquarters is here in Manila. Uh, we have 45 offices throughout Asia and the Pacific, including an office in Kabul, Islamabad, Dhaka. Papua New Guinea gives me a lot of uh, headaches. Port Moresby is a tough place for folks <laughs> to work, you know, so, um, which I never, I didn't know until I took this job. You know, when I thought of PNG before, it was just in the terms of the Marine Corps battles that took place during the island hopping uh, campaigns, you know, so I never thought about PNG uh, as a place to do development work. It's a, it's a problematic spot. So, so yeah, so that's what I do. I'm based here in Manila. This used to be a cool job when I got to travel. Pandemic has, has put a curve on a lot of that. So <laughs> One of the things that really jumped out to me about Revolutions of All Colors, which I greatly enjoyed, was how well the writing seems informed by experience. And now that I'm thinking about it, which isn't to say that it's autobiographical necessarily, but there's this one, one of the chapters deals with um, the character of Simon, who's this really athletic, but somewhat relationship troubled guy who didn't have a father growing up. He's in special operations. After he gets out, he takes a very short stab at not being in the military and immediately goes into security contracting. That was a really well and powerfully written um, chapter. Were some of your own experiences put into that from, from security? For Simon, he's an interesting character. You know, so my father was in the Air Force. He did 27 years. He retired as a chief master sergeant at E-9 at Tinker Air Force Base in Oklahoma. So I, I, (laughs) one thing that always bugged me is that the um, Air Force doesn't get much coverage, I I guess you could say, in literary fiction. You know, it's all, everyone's always writing about Army Special Operators or, you know, Navy SEALs. so I was like, let me do PJs. I, I wanted to do uh, the Air Force Special Operations Community. I wanted to write about someone in the Air Force for my dad. Uh, <laughs> and Simon, I wanted him to be a, um, a point where the, the tension between different threads in the Black community come together. I, I wanted him to, be, to have the influence of his, of his father and his, his mother, the, the kind of militant Black Panther side. And then to have this influence, uh, a character named Frank, who is, uh, represents more of a conservative strain in, uh, in Black thought. Yeah, I wanted that conflict and tension to come to bear in Simon, taking away his father figure. I wanted him to have difficulty forming relationships. Yeah, the tension, the internal tension in Simon is what make the, makes the character interesting. You know, the conflict. It's the conflict. You know what I mean? The, the conflict makes the, gives the work life, is what I always say to people. Without conflict, the, the fiction it doesn't work well, you know? Not to take anything away from uh, either the character or how well he is written, as are all of the characters on a craft level. I'm not trying to imply that or insinuate it. It seems to me that there's a lot of experience in these stories and characters that feels real in a way that I I hate to say it. It's not popular to say this, but oftentimes 
uh, reading fiction, I can feel the lack of verisimilitude. You know, I, I, you yeah. mentioned Chekhov uh, a couple times in the book uh, through, the, through the voices of characters. And you know, one of the things that's remarkable about Chekhov is Chekhov, a doctor, writes a lot about doctors. You know, there's, there are a lot of doctors in his short fiction. He's writing about something he knows, you know? Yeah, yeah. What did he say? He said that uh, medicine is his wife and literature was his, is his mistress. You know, <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny when, uh, when medicine shows up in his stories, you know? I was just thinking about the, uh, the one of the only pieces of short fiction that I've actually read in Russian, because Chekhov is easy to read in Russian because the sentences are so simple. When I returned to Kiev on the National Security Education Program, I studied at the Kiev Linguistic Institute. I was studying Russian, so I was there doing Russian for six months, and the instructors were incredible. One of the stories they had us read was the lady with a little dog, uh, Damasa Sabachka which is set in Crimea, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Chekhov has been a, has been a big influence on my work. I'm a big fan of Chekhov's stuff. To, to, to answer the question about the experience being in, in the work, for the chapter on Mogadishu, certainly. Mogadishu, I, I worked for three years as a United Nations field security officer. It's a country and a people that I have a lot of love. I wanted that to come through in, in the story. I also wanted to make sure I wrote about Somalis in an honest way, writing about Africa, what was it? I did not do well in high school. I, I barely graduated. It's one of the reasons why I decided to enlist. Um, but one of the few AP classes I had was uh, I had AP literature uh, novel. I wanted to read about Africa. And I had a great teacher, a, a nice white lady. And, you know, she um, she gave me things fall apart, which was kind of it was like back then that was all you got. Like you wanted to use <laughs> things fall apart and then heart of darkness you got right? you know, like those two books you know and like uh yeah you check that's it that's all you got you know and there's so many um now you know from Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie there's so many great writers from Africa that are out there when I was coming up you read things fall apart I wanted to make sure I represented Africa well and, and I wanted to show some of the tension some of the conflict that comes up when a black American is working in Africa it's a strange place to work as a black American you realize how tenuous your connection, at least I realize how tenuous my connection to the continent is. There's a word in Swahili for foreigner or white person. Mzungu is the, the word. And so when I first took the job in, I was working in Nairobi before I, um, before I took the job in Moog, all my staff is Kenyan. And so I'm saying that they'd never had a, um, a black American boss and they were great. You know, so I mean, I asked one day, uh, Irene, one of my staff, I, I said to her, am I Mzungu? You know, it, it's, <laughs> where do I fall? You know what I mean? And she looks at me and she goes, yeah, sort of, you know, and it's like, it's a, um, you understand that outside of the, it's something my dad used to always say is that, you know, outside of the United States, all Americans are white to a certain extent. It makes you think about American privilege, what it means to be an American, but experience did go into a lot of the chapters with Simon. And then when Simon becomes a fighter, I have never been a professional mixed martial artist. When I was serving in uh, the UN Field Security Coordination Officer in the North Caucasus, I lived in a town called Vladikavkaz, um, a little town in North Ossetia. And uh, I, I covered Chechnya, Ingushetia, Dagestan, all of the Caucasus region for the UN operations there. And um, I would go to this gym in Vladikavkaz. The folks on both sides of the, the Caucasus mountain range, they're fighters, they're, they're wrestlers. You know what I mean? Like these are it's in the culture, you know? So, so I'd go to this gym and there was a mixed martial arts class they were teaching at this gym. I appear to be fit, you know what I mean? So I, the guys convinced me to take this class and they, um, oh, they were wearing me out, Adrian. 
I'd go there and it was twice a week I'd get my ass whipped, you know, like, <laughs> and, like and, and again, I, I'm the one black person in this entire town in town of Vladikavkaz, Vladika, so it was just me, you know, and, uh, and so everyone would want to pick me as a partner when, when it's time to roll. They'd be like, oh, you know, Dwayne, Dwayne, you know, so like, so I'm in there getting worn out, you know what I mean? But it, it helped me to develop a, uh, a real love for fighting. And that showed up in Simon's chapter, in uh, Simon's second chapter, where he's doing the fighting. So yeah, yeah, experience did bleed into a lot of um, into a lot of the novel, you know, like a lot of first novels. A lot of it is autobiographical. You know, I mean, you find that with a lot of novelists, like their, their first novels tend to uh, to rely heavily on uh, experience. A part of revolutions of all colors that goes beyond that, and and I mean, I, I asked about the autobiographical element of Simon only because you mentioned that you know you've done some security contracting. Uh, and are, do, are doing that. I mean, I, do, I don't mean to say you're, you've done some of it, you, you know quite yeah. a bit about it. But the thing that really jumps out, and the two things that really jump out, jumped out uh, to me about the book are firstly, that it has a vision that that is far grander than autobiography. It's clear that what you're doing, the project that you have is not to write about yourself, but to write about a kind of experience that that people connect to. And the way that it's that that is obvious is that you're you're spanning generations. I mean, the story is generational. It can't just be about you. Uh, or if it's about you, it's 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 in such an indirect way that it makes it you know it's 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 essentially not about you. So that's the first thing where I would say it's just it's simply not one of those you know, patently autobiographical novels, save in the way that you you know your own experience informs the the the, the truths of it. The other thing that really jumped jumped out uh, to me about the book is how empathetic it is. And it really reminded me of, of, of Tolstoy in that regard, where there are no bad characters. Like every one of the characters where you think like, oh, here's the bad guy. You know, oh, there's this thug who's gonna threaten to beat up the Michael and Gabriel and Simon's gonna stick up, you know, for him. But then something bad happens to him. And he's seen as, you know, just another victim of, of the system. Almost everybody is, is seen uh, both for their strengths and their weaknesses. And it's difficult to, to, to look at them as anything other than characters, warmly, uh, empathetically. So I congratulate you on that. Yeah. It was really, it was a very pleasant read from that perspective. I felt like I was in the story. One of the joys of fiction is taking on point of view of someone else. That's one of the reasons that fiction is a great thing to, uh, to do. It's one of the reasons why it's important for people to read fiction, to understand an experience that's wider than your own. It's hard to write about a character who's different from yourself if you don't have someone like that in your life that you love, is what I always tell myself. So, um, you know, I wrote from the first person from a um, Ukrainian lady's point of view in the uh, in the chapter, in one of the chapters in the book. And, um, you know, she's an arms dealer, but I, I have a lot of Ukrainian people who I um, whom I love in my life. I hope that informed how I wrote about that, how I wrote about that character. It's a risky proposition writing from someone whose culture is different from yours, who comes from a different community. I'm straight. One of the brothers in the uh, in the book is bi. Yeah, I wanted to make sure I represented the, you know, members of the LGBTQ community well. I wanted to make sure that I, I represented that community in a respectful way. But not just, I, I didn't want these characters with their head held high. I wanted everyone to be three-dimensional. You know, I, I did not want characters that were just cardboard cutouts of anything. When I was writing one of the police officer in, uh, in the final chapter, um, there was one of the things that I, I wanted to keep in mind. I know too many good cops. I know too many good cops to write a, uh, you know, you're in the Marine Corps, half of your friends, you know, 
<laughs> half my friends are cops, but they got out and did. You know what I mean? So uh, I wanted to make sure I represented that, uh, especially now. It, it's it's a tough time to be a law enforcement officer right now, and I. I I wonder what kid is looking at the world and thinking to himself, yeah, that's what I want to do. I want to be a cop. And that's, that's bad for everyone. If tough, smart kids don't want to go into that field, then other people will. I want to make sure I represented that character well, you know, and, uh, and all of them. I reread Huckleberry Finn over the summer with my daughter. Uh, she's 15. She had you know, a list of books that she had to read. And uh, I was like, you have to read it eventually. You might as well knock it out now. So we so I mean, she reread it, or she read it for the first time, and I reread it. And uh, as I was going through it, uh, I saw that Twain had dedicated it to his something written about his butler at the beginning, uh, the butler that was in his family. And I thought to myself, oh, there's the person, there's Jim. That's who he loved. It just never occurred to me. You understand what I mean? Like, you know, that was the person like, that he really, really loved. And that allowed him to write Jim with the empathy that he wrote Jim with, because he had someone like that in his life that he... Uh, that he loved. Just imagine if Conrad had been cool with one of the uh, <laughs> with one of the black people that he encountered in the Congo. <laughs> it's a different book, you know. Now, now you got a different book. You know? <laughs> so, like, it would make a difference. <laughs> that really helped carry and, and root what would otherwise have been something that that was much less accessible to readers. Again, because of the scope of the vision, and it's rare to encounter books that have that type of vision these days. If we're talking about characters, oftentimes, yes, there are characters that are cardboard cutouts um, that seem written for the movie screen instead of or like or a Netflix series instead of the, yeah. the book page almost. Yeah. Um, but then there are also plots that way. You know, you encounter a lot of plots where you're just like, I know where this is going already, and I'm not going to mention any names of books yeah. but there's a book that a lot of people are talking about right now oh i love this book and i think to myself like i barely got through the, the first chapter without thinking i know how this is going to end and i was 100 right and books like that are a dime a dozen i had no idea where your book was going and i was riveted from the first page to the last page and it's it's an american experience and it's not inaccessible because of race i don't think this is the another you know really extraordinary thing about revolutions of all colors i might be wrong about this i assumed that the name was both a play and the kind of ukrainian revolutions that were happening because those tend to be called colored revolutions but also the the race of the the um of the protagonists but then also that's an essentially American experience is revolution. You know, this is how America starts and how Americans kind of relate to each other and to their experience of politics, which is which is really rare. So, uh, yeah, another hat tip to you. Race is a part of if you're a person of color, it's a part of your reality. The world that you live is framed by by many things. And if you're a person of color, one of those things is race, you know, and uh, I wanted to show that I didn't want it to be about race. I wanted race just to be, it's one of the things that these characters, some of the characters contend with in their life. And then I wanted to show how for someone who doesn't have to deal with the challenges that, that come along with that, you know, um, what that means when suddenly that's introduced into your life. So with the character Tamara, she'd never had to deal with any of that before. And more than that, I wanted to show that like, she's not white American. The overwhelming feeling I wanted to come from Tamara was we didn't do it. If you understand what I mean, like the character Gabriel had a lot of hangups. You know, I, I like to say he was evenly balanced. He had a chip on both shoulders. I, I wanted to show that the tension, the conflict uh, that comes up when um, 
when someone who has never had to deal with that reality before suddenly has it thrust upon them by someone they love in their life. Um, and, and I wanted to show how the realities of, uh, of, of American race relations uh, stretch beyond our country. In many ways, Black Americans don't feel American until you leave the United States. You know, if, if you were to ask me to, to list the top five things about my I, identity before I joined the Marine Corps, before I left the United States, I, I would have said American because we lived on Air Force bases overseas when I, my, my father was serving, you know. But that was the experience that really made me feel American more than anything else was living abroad. I, I did not feel the same way about the country until I left it. If I'm remembering it correctly, I, th I think it's in the second. So there are two chapters titled Revolutions of All Colors. It's uh, There's a first chapter and a second chapter, it's like one and two. Um, and I don't remember if it's the first mm -hmm. chapter or the second chapter where they, where Tamara and Gabriel confront their relationship when they're sort of arguing about what it means to be oppressed. And yes, yeah. Gabriel says, I think it's Gabriel who you, you put it in his mouth that like there, there's a difference between being a serf and a slave. And then Tamara says the thing that would be unutterable in uh, America, but one encounters, you know, the N word in different cultures uh, because they're, they're just not aware of the, the freight there. It's sort of an, it's, it's another curse to them. And that sort of initiates yes. them reexamining their relationship, but there's still space for them to come back together, which is extraordinary. Serfdom ended in what I think was 1856. You know, of course, American slavery ended in 1865. It wasn't that much before. It was around the same time. Being a serf, it, it, it's unpaid servitude. You know, I I, uh, I wanted to come up that we are not the only people who have a history of that type of oppression. It was different. American slavery was different than anywhere else in the world. It was, you know, uh, because it was predicated on race. But the experience of, of that type of oppression, I, I wanted to sh I wanted that to be shoved into Gabriel's face, you know, that the things that other folks have gone through, I wanted him to have to contend with that. Comparative suffering is a dead end game. So I, I wanted that to be thrust into to Gabriel's face. And I, and I thought that conflict would, would drive that chapter. I wanted there to be conflict, hard conflict in every single chapter of that book. And, and I did have a, a bigger vision for what I, what I wanted the book to be, but I originally I wanted to be more uh, connected short stories. And then it, be, it became a novel linked by stories, but like you do need to read the entire book. Like each story doesn't stand on its own. So I, I wanted there to be a conflict that was, that was driving every single one of those chapters. That makes sense. I can see that. And I think any anyone who reads the book after having listened to this podcast will immediately understand that there is the book is cohesive, but it's loose. It's definitely loose. The ideas and the relationships are strong enough to hold those chapters together. Uh, but in terms of plot, it is, you know, it's, it's a pretty it's a pretty loose book, not in a bad way, again, because uh, because of I don't know, it's like molecules, right? It's like some molecules are weak. Uh, uh, and, and big or small, and other ones have like very strong bonds, so they can be big or small, but they're stronger. This is a strong one. Um, I, I'd also say that, you know, I, I think it's, it was a gutsy move to confront that question in Gabriel and Tamara's relationship, but that's how they're able to get back together, ultimately, is that they've confronted it, you know, yeah. and then they're able to move through, forward together. And I, and I wanted uh, Tamara to be a Ukrainian nationalist. I, um, <laughs> I got to Kiev as, as an embassy guard. I was a sergeant there, so I, it was 
just after the millennium. It was, it was, uh, I think February, 2000 when I arrived, you know, so he had felt Russian. You didn't hear Ukrainian on the streets the way that you do. The last time we, we went in, we went in 2017 was the last time we were in Kiev, but the, the city feels different now. You know I mean? I, I say even the announcement on the Metro, um, it was, it was in Russian before. And that struck me when I was in the, uh, the Metro in, in Kiev is that the announcement is in Ukrainian now, you know? So yes, yeah, so I wanted tomorrow to be a Ukrainian nationalist, uh, to, to really, um, to have a sense of, of loyalty and patriotism to the political entity that is Ukraine right now. And I wanted to show that Ukrainians and Russians aren't just one tribe. It's funny because you know, that, that piece that Putin wrote or, or, had written in his name or whatever, you know, like one of the things that he's talking about is that the argument that Ukraine is not a separate entity that, you know, like he's arguing, this is just us. This is just part of, of Russia, greater Russia. Yeah. I wanted to show the tension between those two. Um, I use the word tribes in the, um, in the chapter, because that's kind of what it reminded me of having worked in, uh, uh, in East Africa. It, it kind of reminded me of the, the kind of narcissism of small differences that you see between uh, the groups of people who live close to each other in that part of the world that, yeah, that there is tension between those two ethnicities, between those, those groups of folks. Let's talk about that a little while, because I think th th there aren't a whole lot of people who have spent more than a cup of coffee or, or a weekend trip or a business trip in Kiev, and, and you and I happen to be two of them. One of the things we have to say about Tamara also is that you, you mentioned her mother is Russian and her father is Georgian and she's Ukrainian. It's like, what a yeah. quintessentially, like, yeah. and nobody questions that. Nobody's like, you're not a real Ukrainian because of that. Because to be Ukrainian, <laughs> it's similar to being American, right? It's like, if you buy into it, then you're it. And if you don't, you're not. That's it. You hit it right on the nose there. I, I think that's absolutely right. You know, so like I, the example of my, my, my wife is, is a good example. Her, her, her father was Russian, not, not Ukrainian at all. He was, he was a Russian man and he was a, you know, he had that deep love of his country and his culture. It was great to be around. He, he was a cool guy to be around because he loved Russian stuff so much. You know what I mean? Her mom, who, who, who lived, Vera, who lives with us, uh, she's Ukrainian. You know what I mean? And, um, and it didn't really matter. You know, and, and that's the way a, a lot of Soviet folks came up. That's the way you, and with that being said, my dad, he always was kind of an interesting person to talk to about this type of thing too, because he, he had a, he was a, a U.S. military man uh, for his entire professional, uh, for most of his professional life. But his feeling about the Soviet Union, he would say things like, oh, they always make a point of putting down racism. You know, like a lot of the propaganda posters that would come out during the Cold War, you know, the segregation made America look horrible on the world stage. You cannot be a beacon of freedom while you're have a, the fire hoses going on uh, on people who are trying to vote. You know, it's hard hard to square that. You know, so the Soviet Union capitalized on that. Yeah. So my father had this view of like this kind of non-racist Shangri-La. You know, and then like when you when you work in a former Soviet Union, you you see the way that the Central Asians were treated, and, and you you understand that there was a lot of um, there was and is a lot of racism uh, that existed in the, in that part of the world. This is just this is one of those giant questions. What makes identity? And and for a long time, I think America was kind of whistling past the graveyard of slavery, and not even the graveyard, like the the country club of racism, which was and is still alive and well in America. Uh, 
saying with the sort of national myth that, and there's some truth to it, but it is still essentially a myth. It's, it's, it's an exercise in narrative building that you can come from anywhere in the world and go to America. You can, you can come from anywhere in America. And once you're an American citizen, you have the right to vote. And that's the thing that's essential. And it doesn't matter, like, like, which is different from Japan, say, where if you marry a Japanese girl and you learn to speak Japanese and you Tom Cruise it up from The Last Samurai and you wear Japanese clothes, not only will you never be Japanese, but your grandkids will never be Japanese. Like they'll hire a private eye to track back and say, where was your grandfather? Oh, he was Tom Cruise from Last Samurai. Sorry, he's a gaijin. That means you're a gaijin. You're not a real Japanese person. You're somehow inferior, you're gaijin. Um, and that's not supposed to be how it works in America. That's the myth, that's the narrative. Um, and I think that was the competing narrative in the USSR. And that's one of the things I think they're trying to figure out now. And it's one of the reasons you see so much pro-Russian sentiment on the left. They've got this memory of the USSR, which is that poster that your father was talking about, the posters your dad was talking about, that vision of a, yeah. a society based not on race, but on class. That was the project. But over time, it became, I mean, it, maybe it was that way, or they were really trying to make it that way for like 20 or 30 years. And then it just ended up defaulting back to Russian nationalism. And by the end of it, one of the reasons yeah. that so many people wanted out was they were like, I got to speak Russian to be a part of this project and be Russian. Like, I just want to speak Ukrainian, you know, mm -hmm. like, I don't want, I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. You know, I wonder if you're, one of my experiences, I, I when I, when you hear Russians talk about the, um, even back just when it was the orange revolution, you know, so like in, what is that? The 2000, for, you know, uh, late 2004, early 2005, the, uh, you heard Russians would talk about the, the, the orange revolution in this way that like, like they were offended because in, in the, in the larger project of the Soviet Union, the Ukrainians always kind of had a, uh, like a little brother status almost, if you know what I mean, like it was the, the Russians who were dominant, you know, and then you had the Ukrainians and then somewhere way further down, you had the Tajiks and Uzbeks and all those folks. They certainly weren't treated the same way as the Ukrainians, you know what I mean? So like this feeling of like, oh, and now you want to be completely independent of us, how dare you? That was almost the feeling I felt from the Russian side uh, initially, like, you know, like a feeling of betrayal, which is strange because Ukraine is a separate, I'm not strange, but in the sense that like, there are enough people who feel, certainly the Russians must understand there are enough people who have a, a love for the political entity of Ukraine today, what Ukraine is today, you know what I mean? That a, a patriotism is formed for the country itself. One, one of the interesting points Putin makes in the article is that a country called Ukraine, there was a Soviet Socialist Republic called Ukraine, but before that there was, it, there was the Russian Empire, right? You know, like there was never a country called Ukraine before that. And uh, I mentioned that to my wife after I read the article and, and her answer was so, there is one now. There is one now, and there are people who have formed a uh, loyalty to it. And nationalism is, if, if there's one thing that we, we learned in the 20th century, I hope, it's not that nationalism is weak sauce. It is pretty weak sauce, but it's also really dangerous. It's very vo volatile. Really bad things can happen with it, but it's, it's weak sauce in the terms of like building an identity on that exclusively. Yeah, one of the things that pisses me off about the whole 
you know, as somebody who wants to get beyond all this bullshit, you know, who like, I, I, I want us to be, we should be on Mars by now. We ought to be mining Jupiter or something. Like we're, we, we've gotten so hung up on yeah. ourselves, you know, in the last like three centuries, four centuries. Yeah. But like Germany wasn't a country before 1870. You know, prior to 1870, it was a bunch of kingdoms and principalities. Italy was not a country before like 1868. It was a bunch of duchies and principalities and like kingdoms. Not This idea yeah. that like, you know, Russia's a nation or, you know, this is a nation, these peoples. It's like, it's a very, very recent idea. Yeah. And that's, an, again, to get back to the character of Tamara, the first, one of the first people I thought about with, with Tamara uh, just associating was um, Nijitsky, who was the great, uh, and I, I thought of this as well because of Gabriel and, and he's a dancer, you know, Nijitsky, the great, uh, mm. ballet, one of the great all-time ballet dancers and, and the choreographer uh, for Stravinsky's uh, Rites of Spring, this sort of like infamously difficult choreography mm -hmm. to master, who was was in Ukraine and never considered himself Ukrainian. I think he considered himself Russian. Um, yes. But this idea yeah. of identity was just, it wasn't something that was consequential. It didn't matter to people before, really before the Nazis. Like the Nazis were the ones who draw, drew a hard line in the sand and said, what are you for your paperwork? If you write down Jewish, that's a big problem. If yeah. you write down Polish or Ukrainian, that's a pretty big problem. If you write down Russian, you know, what are you going to write down? And I think like that locked a lot of yeah. people in. Like that, the USSR actually used those identity papers after World War II to say, this is what you told the Nazis. So we're going with that, honestly. And yeah. suddenly it became important. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's like, but it wasn't important before. This is what, yeah. I, this is what I speak. And, and so it's kind of steamrolled since then. And so... You know, again, for, for, for Putin, I feel like on the one hand, he's saying he wants the USSR, which taps into this, a really precious and beautiful idea that a lot of people still have about what is possible with humanity. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter. You know, maybe it matters your class yeah. to a certain extent, but really what matters is how, how sincerely you, you buy into the community and what you pay into the community. But then on the, the other part of it is he also talks about the Russian Empire and he he call, he harkens back to imperial conquest. Well, that's no good. You know, that's that's that that shit's bogus. You know, the imperial aggression, you know, the imperial aggression is the stuff that's like, well, I don't we don't we shouldn't need to do that. You know, the, the racism. We shouldn't need yeah. to do that. If you believe it's in the American myth, it's, you don't need that that junk. Yeah. If you believe America's the words engraved in our ingrained in our founding. Um, Thomas Jefferson was a was a great statesman. You know, I, I look at the Declaration of Independence as a, as a piece of literature. It's a great piece of literature. It's a great piece of writing. And in my heart, I want to believe that's what my country is. You know, I, I want to believe that my country is what's represented in the Declaration of Independence, you know, which is written by a flawed man. You know what I mean? Um, when I think about nationalism, I think about the, the line, I guess, between nationalism and jingoism and, and the type of patriotism that I think can be helpful. There is, I have a cheesy love for the United States of America. I love my country. You know what I mean? It's strange now because my, my kids have spent most of their lives outside of the United States, um, all of their lives outside the United States, you know, so they're forming relationships with the country based on the lens of how they see it from, and my daughter, uh, is just, you know, she's 15 now. So, you know, for her, it's been Black Lives Matters protests. And, you know, she's what, for her, it's been, what do you love about this place so much, dad? You know what I mean? And, and it's, um, we've had some great conversations, some interesting conversations about what it means to be an American, what, what, 
what it should mean to be an American. Yeah, I've never felt more pessimistic about the world than I feel right now, you know, and you're trying not to communicate that to your kids. You don't want to communicate pessimism, you know, but the, um, there is value and worth in the American project. Just hearing you talk about it, it occurs to me that this foundational document, uh, Declaration of Independence, and to a certain extent, the Constitution, you know, if it can appeal to somewhat nerdy or intellectual or artistic types, like that's, maybe that's the thing that holds it together, that, that, that sense of, of striving for something that in spite of all of the flaws and the, the manifest failures and the bad decisions that have been made, uh, there's still a thing that yeah. it's so precious that it can actually attract people 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 don't you know immigrate to america saying hey you're the guys who invaded iraq right i want in on that my tribe is people are, are beaten up on me either in my family or in my town or in my country i'm hazara or i'm burakumin in japan or i'm georgian in russia or whatever it is and, and in america i know they don't really i can make a new life for myself there i can move to alaska and get some property on the yeah. cheap and then it's just going to be me and my family and nobody's really going to mess with me. The idea that you come to the United States and, and then you become American in a way that like you don't like you, you, you just mentioned it like you, you don't join another country that way. It's, it's I, I find that like, you know, in the work that I do, uh, you know, I spent those 10 years at the UN. I've been with the Asian Development Bank for five years now. We've lived overseas all that time and you find often you know, you have to defend your country. It's a weird thing. You know, I mean, you'll be at a dinner party or something like that. And suddenly, you know, you're all 50 states with mustard on your chin and you, you got to figure out something to say because people are asking about some uh, something that, you know, that that has happened in world affairs. It concerns your country, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's a it's a very different thing to hear someone who's not a member of the project uh, critiquing the project. Here's what we could say about right. the Constitution, I think, or, or the project of America as created by a group of extremely flawed people of power and privilege, not relative to the rest of the world, but certainly relative to where they were. And that is that it is an idealistic project. This is something that I believe and yes. you know, I, I'll stand by, which is yeah. that they, they have a vision for the future that is not based in reality. They're from the age of reason, they're pro-enlightenment, they've been, they've been educated in the enlightenment and they actually believe, which is, you know, almost unique in human history th that you get all these people together who are like, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna design a better society that's gonna continue to improve itself. It's kind of crazy. When I, when I talk to, it's mostly the conversations I have with my daughter about how the, the discussions about Confederate statues, bases, the naming of things after people who are either with the, the government of the Confederacy or the army of the Confederacy, that's fundamentally different from tearing down a statue of, of George Washington or John Adams or any of the founders. The argue, I feel like I'm arguing with her generation when I have these conversations with my daughter because she says, well, what's the difference? They own slaves. What I say to her is the difference is that if you fought for the Confederacy, you betrayed your country. You fought The cause you fought for was white supremacy. That's different. We shouldn't name bases after those people. How much do we have to honor people who betrayed their country? That's one of the things when I, when I look at the way protests have gone in the last few years, I wish a, a firm line had been drawn between people who were in the government or the army of the Confederacy and people who were just problematic because they were men of their times. And I think there's a, there's a hard line between those two groups of people. 
Thomas Jefferson owned slaves, famously, you know, had a relationship with one of his slaves. As we said, deeply flawed men, you know, should we be tearing down statues of Thomas Jefferson? Do we? No, I think we, we of course, we have to continue honoring the, the founders of the country who were flawed, but did not fight to to maintain the institution of slavery. If we could draw a firm line between that, it's almost when I, I look at the way that um, in critical race theory it has been used as a, it's like a catch all for anything that that makes people uncomfortable about history. We can't move forward until we have dealt with what has happened, just in an honest way. That's what I always say, just in an honest way. This is who we are. We would not be who we are if it had not been for slavery. It was, it was, it was the economic engine that <laughs> made the United States a powerhouse in, in many ways. You know what I mean? It just it wouldn't have happened without slavery. And, and how do you not talk about that, what the institution was, you know, uh, and what it meant, you know what I mean? How come we can talk about the Holocaust in a way that, like, doesn't, we can discuss it. We can talk about the Holocaust. And the re I think the reason is because the Holocaust happened there. Slavery was us. The fact that we have a Holocaust museum in the United States before we had a slavery museum, I, I found that one of the most telling things uh, about the American psyche. You know what I mean? We can talk about oppression if it's that oppression. We don't want to talk about what took place on our own soil, you know, um, and, and, and that it leaves us almost like with an infantile view of the world. Like Americans have this idea that we're perpetually innocent and, and it's problematic, you know, and I, and I'm not sure what the, what the answer is. I, I when, you know, South Africa had its, its truth and reconciliation commission, which you talk to South Africans and you hear both sides. People say that it was a farce and some people say that it was, it was a useful and healing thing to be able to talk about everything that took place, everything that took place. And uh, if you read some things about the uh, the way the Truth and Reconciliation Commission commenced, it wasn't just the Afrikaners who were um, coming clean with things that, that that they that they did. You know, if you're in the ANC, you're in the African National Congress, and you and you you set off a device, and there are nothing but civilians at that place where you set off a device, then like that is not that's not a just act of um, uh, of resistance. That that is we could call that terrorism. Some of the things the ANC did was terrorism. And, and those things came out during the Truth and Reconciliation Commission because people were able to talk about those things honestly and freely. And I, I, you wonder if, if something similar needs to happen in the United States. We, we, we can't talk about the Civil War. Americans can't talk about the Civil War. The only people who want to talk about the Civil War are people who have a revisionist view of it. Southerners who have a revisionist view of the Civil War, the people who really want to talk about it. Other than that, folks don't like to talk about that war. You know, and... Uh, it's problematic. A couple of things I wanted to to tackle from that. The first one being, you know, the one of the really great insights of, I think, the early 21st century has been historians tackling World War II, being able to draw on both the American and European, like Western European vision of it, and then also the Central, Eastern European, and Russian side of it, which had been closed off to us, you know, after 1945, locked away in the yeah. Kremlin uh, and various uh, you know places behind yeah. the Iron Curtain. And when you see the history as it is written down, you know, those those places were opened to researchers, you know, starting in the early 1990s. You understand that the the thing that aliens will like if aliens came to earth and, and, and were able to look at the the phenomenon of world war ii the phenomenon of what nazi germany did it what they did was they they carried out 
colonization on European people. That's what that was. You know, it was part, it was the same language. It was the same, it was, we need room to expand. It was manifest destiny, except going Eastern to Eastern Europe, but also Southern Europe. You know, the Germans said, we're gonna do this thing the Americans did, manifest destiny. They got rid of the Native Americans and we're gonna get rid of Jewish people and Slavs. And that's the Native Americans here in Europe. And a fundamentally dehumanizing event. All of the language that we use to explain what is horrible, industrial exploitation of people that the Nazis carried out on the people that they occupied is essentially a riff on what the United States of America did. Did you see Elizabeth Samet's book, Finding the Good War? I haven't read that one yet. I've read a couple yeah, it, other books of hers, but. Yeah, oh, it's great. Yeah, and she's uh, talking about a lot of the myths that we tell ourselves about World War II. And, and, and one of the things like, I'd be interested to hear your experience with this, but like, my wife would always say this thing was like, she, she had to, when she was growing up, she always had the feeling that World War II just happened. <laughs> and I said, why did you feel like that? You know, because because she said you would see the guys because the guys would come out and they'd have the, the, the chest full of the all the medals during the, the May parade and all that, you know what I mean? And like the uh, you didn't have that in the States, you know, that you didn't have this type of like, you know, even the way that it's called, you know, the Velikaya Tietjesvanaya Vaina, you know what I mean? The Great Patriotic War, you know what I mean? Uh, that's a very specific way they talk about that conflict. Going to Ukraine was like, you know, for me, Saving Private Ryan was my touch point for World War II when I went to Ukraine as a 20-year-old sergeant, you know what I mean? And then when you when you go to the former Soviet Union and you see they won that war with their with their bodies, how many of them, how many people, how many Russians and Ukrainians died uh, during World War II? When you look at the numbers, it doesn't even compare to, to the, the, the amount of sacrifice. It's not even close, you know what I mean? And like, um, yeah, they, they won that war with their bodies, you know, and, and it's, um, it's, it's interesting to see that the, the way that we the way that we look at that conflict now, you know, the way that we look at that war now, we have a very specific it's a very specific American way of looking at that war. Yeah, Americans like to talk about that war. If there was a good war for me, it was the uh, <laughs> it was probably the Spanish Civil War. There's a war that you <laughs> you could have gone and fought in and, and, and felt like your cause was completely and 100 percent just. I don't know, like the, um, the yeah, the, the feeling I had about World War II changed drastically after I worked in the former Soviet Union. I, I don't know if, if that was the same for you. Were you, you were there during the, uh, were you there for Maidan? So I got there in May of 2015. I never saw any of the big maneuver battle stuff. I was, uh, I went to the front, you know, a dozen times wow. or so, saw, you know, yeah. the the low grade conflict that was happening there, which, you know, an average day over there was like an intense day in Afghanistan. But yeah, one of the, the first things that uh, sort of jumps out at me, especially vis-a-vis -vis World War II and our, our memories of World War II is, man, you go to the World War II Memorial in Kiev, that's your Statue of Liberty, plus like some kind of memorial I've never even seen. There's nothing like it in the United States of America. It's, yeah. it's, um, it's, it's a capital M memorial. It's a mega memorial. You know? Yeah. Did you see that there's an Afghan war museum that's right next to it? So yes. yeah. It, and th that Afghan war museum is one of the most interesting museums I've ever been in in my entire life. Every time I go to Kiev, I go back to that place. You know what I mean? That is such an interesting place to, to, to look at. The World War II museum has, has always been interesting. And when I, we went back, the last time we were in Kiev was in 2017, and a lot of stuff 
from Maidan had found its way into the World War II Museum. I'm not sure when was the last time you were there. Yeah, so I was, I was surprised to see that. Yeah, it was interesting to look at it. It's like they're trying to draw, it's a narrative uh, about the, the history of Ukraine, about the, the, about the country, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's, that's a great museum and a great place to go for a walk with the family. I love, I love Kiev. I love that city so much, you know? Same, same. It's the first time I came to it, I was, uh, it, it was, it was so alien. It actually, I, I have to say, it offended my senses. Krishetic, all of it. I felt, I felt offended. I felt that I was on an alien planet and I slowly and inexorably fell completely in love with it walking up yeah. and down the hills and, and seeing its corners. And, uh, and yeah, the first time, again, the first time I went to that World War II Memorial, I remember like getting there and being like, huh, like this is, this is a pretty big place and walking into it and being like, like just blown away that the statues that I assumed were like, like I, it, you have no sense of proportion in that memorial. Like you, you're walking for like three or 400 meters until you understand that like, you're like, this is like a, more than a kilometer long or something. Like this is huge. And you're in the statues and they're just tight. They're titanic, you know? And, yeah. and, you know, so another thing that I wanted to mention, I realize we're running a little bit short on time and, and there's many more things we could cover. Um, uh, there's one other thing I want to ask you about, but I, I, I want to mention this first, which is that the, um, you know, when we're talking about tearing down statues in the United mm -hmm. States, a lot of people, and, and tearing down names and heroes. A lot of people get really upset about that. I kind of understand it. I, I try to understand where they're coming from. I try to empathize from both perspectives, the tear it down, the keep it up. The thing that you see that, that you see in the World War II Memorial that like that is somewhat instructive, I think, is that it's about, that too is about an idea, the World War II Memorial in the USSR, from the USSR in Kyiv. And it's not about a person, you know, like it's it's about the collective experience of being overwhelmed by this thing and somehow groups of people being able to stand up to essentially extermination. I mean, the, the, there were Jewish people on the list. Hitler got halfway through that list of people. And then he was yeah. the next up on the list was the Slavic people. Like he was going to run the Holocaust on them. We don't know who else he had on that list, but we know for sure it was them because they wrote that down. And, and so, but instead of saying, you know, the heroes are this guy and this guy and this gal and, the, and because you know they're flawed because everybody's fucking flawed. You know, everybody is flawed. Instead of that, it's look at these people, you know, achieve, you know, strive to, to be one of these people when your country calls you. Strive to be one of these people when your community calls you. And I feel like there's a kind of potential in that, you know, like maybe we shouldn't have statues of George Washington. Maybe we should have statues of justice and statues of mercy. And maybe we should have, instead of, you know, Washington Avenue, uh, Liberty Avenue, you know, like maybe we should just like get rid of the names and like invest ourselves in important concepts. Yeah, no, I hear what you're saying. I fear that the, when, I, when I'm talking to folks who are younger than me and like it, it is one of the things that's really made me feel my age has been talking to, to young folks on this issue talking to, to people of color on this issue. And I'm just like, I hear myself and I'm just like, wow, I'm so much older. I, I expect so much less. That's what my daughter says. You ex don't expect much. You know, it's like, why should we have statues of slave owners? <laughs> She's saying this to me in this way. It's like, if that is the one thing you're using to define this person's existence, then yeah, that, that is a statue of a slaveholder. If that's the one thing that defines this person's existence. 
I don't think that is the case, you know, and I, I yeah, these are, these are tough questions. One of the, the, I guess to go back to the novel, one of the things I wanted to show in the novel that I, I, I uh, I'm not sure if it came out as much as I wanted it to was that there was a strain of, of conservative black thought that, um, that simply wanted to, to join up. Like you, you have a, there, I think there are two strains in the, in the civil rights movement. There were, were folks like uh, Martin Luther King Jr. Was a, was a revolutionary. He wanted to fundamentally change um, uh, the United States. If, if you want to read anything about his, his use of international affairs after Vietnam, he wrote an essay called After Vietnam, and you see that he wanted the United States to be better in the world, us to be what we, what we say that we are, you know, to, to achieve what we, we think that we are, you know. Thurgood Marshall, Booker T. Washington, these are folks who, there is a, a hard working strain there, like we want to prove ourselves as worthy. It's problematic to a certain extent to even feel that way, but who just wanted to participate. Thurgood Marshall was a big proponent of the war in Vietnam. You know, he said that when, uh, when America makes the call, Black men have always answered it. Was proud of that fact, you know what I mean? How do you feel about the Buffalo Soldiers is a weird thing too. My, my father was very proud of the Buffalo Soldiers, of those cavalry divisions, of those cavalrymen who helped wage a vicious counterinsurgency against the indigenous populations of the United States of America. That's what the Buffalo Soldiers did. You know, and like when we, when Amer Black Americans talk about that, those are, that is more in the strain of folks who just want to, to join up with um, the strain of thought of folks who just want to join up with the, the, the colonial aspect of being an American. We just want to participate fully, as opposed to making the country better, just participating in the, taking advantage of the full privilege of American citizenship. Yeah, without fundamentally changing the country. I, I think that the, those are, they're all tough questions. I would hate to see the rightful anger that I feel about Confederate named bases, Confederate statues, extending to the founding fathers. It, 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 I, I would hate to see that happen. I think it confuses the issue and it makes it harder for people to take a firm stand against the Confederate stuff because we're tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus. I, I, I don't know. I don't know how far we, you know, how wide that should be because Andrew Jackson is still on a 20. Yeah, those are tough questions. From my perspective, the thing I worry about and, and the reason that I almost say like this is the who is actually an exemplar of virtue, which people from our history is a losing fight because the more we progress, if we become so enlightened that we've created artificial intelligence, artificial intelligences are equal, then anybody who made a joke about robots, you know, is now going to be essentially it's like, oh, so you don't believe AI is, you know, and, and, and if we become so enlightened that we care as much about animals, you know, yes. as we do about yeah. people, thinking animals. I like, always say that's going to be the big one. That's the one. I think that our, our, our the future generations are going to look back on the on how we treated animals, and that is going to be the thing that we will be judged. I think that future generations will judge us harshly based on that. You know what I mean? Yeah, there, there's a, a real strain of uh, hypocrisy uh, with the way that we treat animals. I, I agree with that completely. You know, and I think mass incarceration is something else that we'll look back on that and just be kind of amazed that we that we put that many people in prison. You know, like when you really look at the numbers, it's just like, that is astounding, the number. And then the, the, the speed with which our, our prison industrial complex has, has grown in the, in the United States. You know, we have 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners, you know what I mean? In the land of the free. It, it's a, uh, yeah, it, it should embarrass all of us.
you know, the, the, the way that the uh, the war on drugs uh, led to to mass incarceration. I think that is something that future generations will judge us harshly on and black leaders, too. Not just why that when I that for that issue that that was black leaders too like the uh, those three strikes and you're out laws you know it, it all those mandatory sentencing type things stops you know it stops judges from judging they don't they don't judge anymore now the prosecutor makes a decision you know if they charge you with a thing then you have to get that amount of years you know everyone is is, is basically serving life prisons have changed you know what I mean I, I don't you know I, I watched uh, the Shawshank Redemption with my kids the other day. It's funny watching a movie like that because you're like, that's not the way prisons are now. <laughs> I don't know if prisons were ever like that, you know. So, uh, yeah, I think that um, future generations will judge us harshly on on many things. And I, 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 you can't whitewash history. You know, you you can't clean it up. History is is uncomfortable, you know. But I, but with those Confederate bases, I think of the the Black Americans who 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 shipped out of Benning or Bragg. It's it incenses me that there are black Americans who went and died for their country and they shipped out of a place that was named after a Confederate general that fought for them to be in slavery. That's insanity. Or hood. That, that, I mean, uh, yeah, or hood, you know, or any of this. It's just like, and hood wasn't even a good general. <laughs> you, know, you, you can make an argument about Lee. Okay. You know, cause like uh, you, you read uh, the killer angels. I remember that the first, like at the beginning, he says, uh, he's, you know, talking about the characters, you know, the, the, you know, all these, uh, these military figures and Robert E. Lee is, is described as the most loved man in either army. And I think that's probably true. You know, that, that, that is probably true. You know what I mean? And like, you could make, you know, obviously Robert E. Lee was a brilliant strategist that you, how, you can't not say that, but that doesn't trump the fact that he swore an oath. He resigned his commission and swore an oath to the Confederacy. I, I have a hard time understanding why it's even an issue. Like, you know, like you, you know, as an officer, you, you swear to defend the constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that the Confederacy was a was a domestic enemy. That's what it was. You know what I mean? Like why? That's what I have a hard time wrapping my head around. Why is that even an, an issue? You know what I mean? I think that's a a pretty good place to stop. I, I've got like at least one other question for you, probably five, but uh, I don't want people to be listening for, for far too long, although we could easily talk on. Sure. Um, yeah. So the book again is Revolutions of All Colors. I know you're working on some other stuff. Can't wait to see that too. Thank you so much for joining the WBT. It's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much, Adrian. I really appreciate it.